0: The passage that I would like to call your attention to this morning will be found in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Luke writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, That will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of a heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his truth on our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. God, we pray that you would illuminate it to us this morning. God, I pray that you would guard my mouth and these people's ears, that only your truth would remain. If I would say anything at all, that is unprofitable and unhelpful, that it would fall away and be forgotten. God, have your way and work in our lives this day. And we pray it in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. One of the uh, the tasks that I have as a pastor is to send out emails. And as some of you have been around, well, I know that sometimes I mess them up. But I have to send out emails and, and, and talk about different things that are happening. And some of them are sad, like someone's sick or someone's mother passed away. But this fall, I've got to send a lot of happy emails. And, and three of those happy ma- emails have been birth announcements. You know, we're very blessed here at Wycliffe Church. We've had three babies born this fall. And in 2024, we have four that are due. And so we send out these birth announcements, and we think about this passage and thinking about our church, I started researching birth announcements, specifically royal birth announcements. And it's kind of interesting, you can go down a rabbit hole of the history of birth announcements, but we'll just stick to the last hundred years in England. I read that when, Charles, when Prince Charles was born, that his mother Elizabeth announced his birth by telegram. That sounds like something we, you know, we don't hear much about anymore. I always, when I was a kid, I always wanted to get a telegram. They, they went away, uh, and I can't ever get one, but they, they announced the birth by telegram. And, and Princess Diana and, and Prince Charles, when they announced the birth of, of William, they did it on television. But then things progressed kind of differently because when William and Princess Kate announced the birth of a future king, they did it on Twitter. You might imagine a few centuries ago that a town crier would, would go through the town and tell everyone, hey, a, a future king has been born. But this birth announcement's unique because it's not a future king, right? It's Jesus Lord at His birth. Jesus Christ is king when He is born. And today as we think about this passage and as we gather together to celebrate the birth of Christ, we're going to think about the birth of the King of Kings. And now, all over, over the world, all over this country, all over this state even, people will be thinking about Luke chapter 2. They may be in other passages, but a lot of them are going to be in Luke chapter 2. And some of the sermons will be sentimentalized, like we're thinking of little babies in mangers, or, or some of them may even be over, you know, elaborate and, and dramatized. They may have light shows and different things. But this Christmas Eve morning, I'm going to ask you a question as we consider this passage. And the question I'm going to ask you is, how do you respond to the Davidic king born in Bethlehem? How will you respond to the Davidic king born in Bethlehem? I'm going to ask you to to reflect on your life, to reflect on your thoughts, to reflect on your actions and say, do you submit to this king? Do you adore him? Do you genuinely love him? or do you call him king and then turn and disobey him because this morning I'm going to argue that this dawn of redeeming grace this foretold davidic king should drive us to genuine worship the birth of christ should drive us to genuine worship at the birth of christ we've we've saw already in this passage three examples of genuine worship we have the angels who are singing praise to God. We have the shepherds who are glorifying God. And then we have Mary who is, who is treasuring up and pondering what God is doing in her heart. This Advent, we've been focusing on a light theme. Throughout the Bible, we see light associated with God. In Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. When God made a covenant with Abraham, God appeared in a pot of fire. When He appeared to Moses, it was as a burning bush. Balaam foresaw a star scepter, a star that would rise from the house of Jacob that would rule. Paul writes to Timothy that God lives in an unapproachable light. When Christ is transfigurated on the Mount of Transfiguration, He is radiant. Isaiah says that there is a people who live in darkness, but the light has dawned. In Luke's Gospel, we read that because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. And we see that God's light breaks into human history in the passage that we have today in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't usually, I I let Alan McDonald know what my passage is going to be and what my main points are going to be early in the week, but we didn't talk about going to old hymns this week, and I'm glad he did. Uh, because I had planned to tell you that I love old hymns because they are so rich in doctrine. And as we think about the line that has, has titled this series, From Silent Night, I just want to read the verse that I read at the beginning of the, the sermon series in the first Sunday of Advent. Silent night, holy night, the Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. And that is what we think about this morning. The dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus who is Lord at his birth, the King of Kings. Now last week we looked at the beginning part of Luke chapter 2 and we saw that Joseph and his fiancee Mary are are called to go to Bethlehem, the city of David, because of a census, because uh, of uh, a decree that came out from Caesar. Now, the Old Testament foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We see that in Micah 5.2. But David and Mary lived in Nazareth. So the, the events that brought them back to Bethlehem so this prophecy would be fulfilled was a, was a, a Caesar ordered a census and, and a tax, and then the local governor ordered it at a specific time, and that specific time happened, happened to be right when Mary would give birth. So God sovereignly brought them there to bring about and fulfill this prophecy. Now when Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem, they find that there isn't anywhere for them to stay. The, the, most of your Bibles will say an inn. Some of them say guest room. But either way, there's nowhere for them to stay. And they take up shelter in a livestock shelter, a cave, a barn, or a bottom of a house. We're going to talk about this more later, and I think Kenan's going to talk about it some next week. But then we get to verse 8 and we look. And we see that in that area, these shepherds are watching their flocks at night. And an angel appears to them. Now we hit pause real quick. They're watching their flocks at night. That tells us something. Historically. It tells us this little bit of information that Jesus was probably not born December 25th. Right? Because in that culture, the custom was not to keep your sheep in the field during the winter months. The sheeps would have only been in the field from March... To maybe November. And in those other months, those colder months, they would have been inside. And so more than likely, Jesus was born sometime between March and November. But that doesn't really matter, does it? Because the date we celebrate Jesus' incarnation is not the most important thing, is it? December is when the church has historically celebrated the incarnation, and it doesn't change the truth. a matter of fact, I was reading, when I was reading about the birth announcements, that many English monarchs will have an actual birthday, and then they'll have an official birthday. And the reason being is because if they're born in February, you don't really do a lot of parades in February. And so they'll celebrate their actual birthday in February, and then there'll be an official birthday sometime in the summer when they can get all the guys in the red jackets and the tall hats out. And so it doesn't really matter, right, what day he was born. This is the time we celebrate it, and that's okay. And sometime during these warmer months, Jesus was born, and we see that the angels sang praise. Look with me at verses 9 through 14. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to people he favors. So here we have Jesus' royal birth announcement in the ancient world the birth of a son a king a future king would be publicly announced but here we see jesus is born and we see that his birth is contrasted with earthly kings and earthly caesars and and the emperor worship because this is a choir of the heavenly realm this is the highest choir you can have this is a heavenly choir and they are singing glory to god This is no mere choir of Caesar. This is not the weak voices of Westminster Abbey. This is the heavenly choir. And they sing an announcement fit for a king. Glory to God in the highest. This is the king of kings. This is the son of God. They sing peace on earth. This is the king that will bring perfect peace between God and man. This is the king, the baby in a manger that would purchase peace by the blood of the cross and would establish the kingdom of God forever on earth. The angels bring this king's royal birth announcement and notice that it doesn't go to the nobility of the day. If we were in the book of Luke more, you'd see this as a theme all the way through. It doesn't go to the nobility, it goes to the fringes of society. Not to the rich and powerful, but to shepherds. God chose what is poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, James 2.5. And this announcement goes to the shepherds, and the shepherds worship by glorifying God. Look at verse 15. And when the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So we have these shepherds, and they're in the field. And who are shepherds? And we say, well, guys that watch sheep, right? You got that part. These are guys that watch sheep. But what you might not know is despite what we see in the Old Testament, shepherds weren't very well thought of. right? You might think in in Israel's culture they should be, because David was a shepherd and Moses was a shepherd, but shepherds were generally known to be dishonest in the first century. They were thought of as unclean by the Old Testament law. They were outcasts. They were fringes of society. Yet despite this, these are the very people that first heard the good news that the Messiah was born. These are the people that first heard that Jesus had come. And if you're reading this in the first century, right, you're going to have your worldview challenged. Because if the Messiah is coming, he's not going to those guys. He's not going to shepherds. But it's the very people that the Lord chose to announce the birth of his son to the outcast. Look with me at 16. And so these shepherds, they hurry off and found both Mary and Joseph, the baby, who was lying in a manger. So they immediately go. They get this announcement, Jesus has been born, and they go. They don't wait. The hurrying is not so much the speed of which they went to Bethlehem, but the fact that they immediately left. The shepherds receive this news, and they don't debate. They don't argue. They don't say, hey, you know, who's going to stay behind And You're staying behind to watch the sheep, and we're going to go. They just all go. They immediately go to see this lord that has been born in the stables and they waste no time and they probably checked all the stables until they found the one that had a baby now i told you there'd be more about this there's a debate over whether jesus was actually born in a stable or if he was born in a home some people say back then that you know livestock was kept under the house on the first floor and people lived on the second Um, i just want to say that if you're in that debate i know some of you are we're never actually told in scripture exactly where he was born. So there's, there's grace there, and it's not essential to the gospel. But I will say that since the second century, even secular historians have said that Jesus was born in a stable. And Christ was, it says in the text, laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It doesn't say, well, they didn't have anything else in the house, so they put him in a manger. It says he was in a manger because there was no room in the end, which leads me to believe with the histor- history of, uh, of the, the church and because of the way it's worded that Jesus was actually born in a stable. And when these, when these shepherds went to find Jesus 2,000 years ago, they didn't go door to door. I believe they went and they looked in all the, the different sh- uh, stables and, and livestock pens until they found the one that had a baby. And when they found this baby... They were glorifying and praising God. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So they searched the town of Bethlehem until they find this, this baby in a feeding box. And then they go back and they're glorifying and praising God. We see what the angels started, right? The beginning of the passage, the angels are glorifying God. Now the shepherds are taking up and praising God because of what they've seen from the heavenly to the fringe of society. We see God glorified because of what happened on this night. And third, we see that Mary worships by treasuring and meditating on God's acts. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, this being the shepherds. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. So everyone's amazed at what's happening this night in Bethlehem. Everyone who's involved, they're amazed at what's happening. The, the, the story of the angels, the shepherds knowing that Jesus was there. But Mary, you could just almost picture her quietly like taking it all in. And she's she's pondering this and she's treasuring it. In her heart. The, the, the Greek word literally means treasured up. And she's meditating on these things. And sometimes, friends, we get the wrong idea of meditation, right? Like we get our idea from like the Lion King and the, the baboon Rafiki, right? Like we get the idea that meditation is, is me sitting Indian style, trying to clear my mind and not think about anything. Maybe I'm mumbling some chant. But really, meditation is not trying to clear our minds, but for the Christian, it's turning over and over, and over the things of God, and thinking about, and, and contemplating on these things, and pushing them down into our hearts, treasuring them up. Many of you remember Jason Asher, and Jason and Ashley that moved, and they spent a lot of time at our house, and we would always kind of joke, because Jason and I both talked about, this kind of weird, but we do a lot of thinking in the shower. I don't know if y'all know or not, but I, I, uh, I, I think of most of my illustrations from my sermons in the shower. Why? Because I'm alone. Nobody's pulling on me. And I'm in there and I'm just thinking about the passage for that week and I'm turning it over and over and over and meditating on it. And we see this with Mary. She's just over and over meditating on these things that are happening. Her child is the Son of God. He's Lord at His birth. She's probably thinking of Gabriel coming, saying that He's going to be born holy. And now this this angelic choir appears to these shepherds and these shepherds show up saying, yeah, we, we were told this is the Christ child. And so as we, look at this, as we look at this passage, and we think about the angels, and we think about the shepherds, and we think about Mary, the question before us is, how do we respond to Christ? How do we respond to the good news that God became flesh? You know, Ligon Duncan says, no one has an encounter with God and thinks that's boring or irrelevant. And I agree. So as we reflect honestly, don't get defensive, but reflect honestly. How do you respond to Christ? Do you find yourself dry and indifferent towards Jesus? When you look back on your life, do you see that indifference towards Christ is normal? Alistair Begg said one time that, I don't know if it's still this way, because he's got a pretty big church now, but when he was a younger guy that he would see lots of times a man, a couple would come in, and the man is with the, uh, the wife, and the wife is, is happy to be there, but the guy just looks completely unhappy to be there. He's, he's you know, while the songs are going, he's jingling his change or whatever, and, and he's looking around. He says, and then one day the man comes in, and he's just singing at the top of his lungs. He so said, what happened? Well, he finally realized who Christ is. So what's what do you do with Christ? Have you truly bent your knee to this King? Or are you a fraud in His court? Can you say that you truly serve Him, that you, 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 you serve Him with a true tongue, that you praise Him with a true tongue? Is everything you own at His disposal, your home, your life, your, your money, your time, is that all of it belong to Christ? Or were you expecting this morning for a sentimentalized sermon about a baby in a manger so you could feel good before you open presents. Because this baby in a manger would redeem man. He would die as a substitute so that all those who repent and believe in him might find life. This morning, friend, if you have not trusted my king, confess, turn, and repent then it'll truly be a a merry Christmas. Perhaps you think you're unworthy. We all are. I certainly am. But as we see in this example with the shepherds, God saves us despite who we are, not because of who we are to show that he is god and that he can take the lowly of the world and make it into something and that he can make a people into something for himself he came to seek and to save the lost and friend you cannot truly worship until you have done this until you have repented and believed but for those who are christ how do we worship J.I. Packer says this: worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. It is honoring and glorifying God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his greatness and gracious that he has given. You see, worship is more than just the songs we sing on Sunday morning. Sometimes people will say, Well, there's the worship time, and then this guy gets up and talks for a little while. Right? No, that's not, worship is not just the songs. Our worship is listening to biblical preaching, if it be biblical. Our worship is is faithfully giving. Our, Our worship is faithfully working in our vocation. Our worship is service to our Lord. It is adoration, our works, our vocation, the Lord's Supper. Friends, in light of this text, how do we worship? Well, I want to lay before you four things. Four ways that we worship Jesus Christ in light of this passage this Christmas. First, worship Christ by adoring Christ. Think of the example of the angels and the shepherds. What the angels started, the shepherds continued. They adored God. They, they, they praised God. J.C. Ryle says, Surely if we are to dwell with the angels for eternity, we ought to share something of their feeling here on earth. Do you share the feeling of, of the choir this morning as you think about Jesus Christ coming to earth? What is your greatest desire this morning? Is it family time? Something under a tree? The spirit of Christmas? Watching, you know, it's a wonderful life later. What is your greatest desire today? Is it those things, or is it Christ? David Hume was a, a deist philosopher who rejected historic Christianity, right? Some of you may know the works of David Hume. As a matter of fact, I know some of you do. Well, one day, one of David Hume's friends saw him hurrying down a London street, right? Like he's, he's going down the street and he's like, hey, David, David. And, and David doesn't stop. He's got to go somewhere. He says, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. You know who George Whitfield is, right? Like the, uh, the evangelist of the Great Awakening. And the guy says, why are you going to hear George Whitfield? You don't believe that stuff. And David Hume says, no, but he does. Right? Like he, 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 Even though he didn't believe it, he wanted to go and hear a man who truly believed something. How many of you would listen to a preacher if you didn't believe what he was saying? How many of you would come here a week and listen to me stumble through books of the Bible and, and trip and fall if you didn't think I actually believe this stuff? Then why do you offer God disingenuous worship? The one who sees our hearts and knows our thoughts. Why would we offer him disingenuous worship? Friends, this Christmas, may we offer God true and genuine worship because we saw in Amos that God does not accept the worship of those whose hearts are far from him. May we sing His praise, may we sing His adoration with the same heart as those shepherds of those angels on Christmas night. Second, worship Jesus Christ by obeying Him. By obeying Him. You know, during the English Reformation... So we have the Protestant Reformation in Europe, and then we have the English Reformation, and then there's a the setback, right? Like Henry VIII, he dies, and his son Edward is a Protestant, the young child king, and, and he ends up dying as well, and who takes the throne but Mary Tudor, right? You know, probably know her as Bloody Mary. And so Bloody Mary, man, she's just pouring out her wrath uh, on the Protestants, right? And one of those Protestants is a guy named John Hooper. John Hooper. John Hooper was burned at the stake in 1555 for refusing to recant the Protestant faith. He left behind a wife, two children, and evidently an adoring congregation that loved him. But there's a tender note in a letter that Hooper wrote to his fellow prisoners when he's locked in the Tower of London. So he's locked in the Tower of London, and there's some guys that had been in a prayer meeting, and the authorities busted in and arrested them all, and he writes this note to them, and he points to our passage today. And he says this, he says, read the second chapter of Saint Luke. There you shall see how the shepherds that watched their sheep at night, as soon as they heard that Christ was born in Bethlehem, by and by must go to see him. They did not reason nor debate with themselves who should keep the wolf from the sheep in the meantime, but they did as they were commanded and committed their sheep to those who ple- to whose pleasure they obeyed. So let us do now, be called, let us commit all other things unto him who called us. He will take heed that all the things shall be well. He will help the husband. He will comfort the wife. He will guide the servants. He will keep the house. He will preserve the goods. Yea, rather it should be undone. He will wash the dishes and rock the cradle. Cast, therefore, all your cares upon Christ. How should we worship in obedience? Knowing that God is sovereign. He's worked it all out. We just have to be faithful. The Robert Bruce, the Scottish Puritan, saw worship and service as synonyms. Our service to God, our worship to God. Friends, our worship is not mere singing, but it is trusting and obeying the one true and living God. He's in control. Third, worship Jesus Christ by trusting His Word. Our worship must be formed by God's Word, the regulative principle. Why do we pray as long as we pray? Why do we preach the way we preach? Why do we sing the songs we sing? Why do we work the way we work? It's because it's all informed by God's inerrant Word. Our public worship is structured according to His Word, and our private and family worship should be as well. Psalm 19 reminds us that God's word is perfect. It renews life. God's word is trustworthy. It makes the inexperienced wise. God's word is right, making hearts glad. God's word is radiant, making the eyes light up. Do we believe those statements? Do we believe that God's word is sufficient? Or do we need dancing stormtroopers and movie clips on Sunday morning? Worship Christ by living a way that believes him and believes his word. Fourth, worship Jesus Christ by pondering the truth of Christ. Mary treasured up everything that was happening around them and meditating on it. She was pondering it and storing it in those hearts. And how many of us, friends, when we read our Bible in the morning, when you have your private time and you open your Bible and you read it, how many of us have forgotten what we read by lunch? How many of us have forgotten what we read by the time we close our Bible? And you say, well, I don't have a very good memory. I just can't remember stuff. My friend, I know most of y'all have good memories because you can tell me about the football game you watched. You can tell me about the Hallmark movie you watched. You can tell me about the latest political drama or what's on Fox News, or did I read about this person? And so I would lovingly argue, I would put before you that it is, this is not an issue of ability. it is an issue of desire. If we want to meditate on God's Word, if we want to worship Him by by knowing His Word, we can do it. Psalm 1911 says, I have treasured Your Word in my heart. Psalm 1997 says, How I love Your instruction. I meditate on it all day long. Friends, we must cultivate the discipline of meditation. We must cultivate the ability to to know God's Word and, and store it up in our heart. Friends, the Davidic king is born. The one who will rule on his throne forever has been born. 2,000 years ago, God broke into human history. To ransom a chosen people, how do we respond to him? He deserves all our worship. Everything we have, if we are his, is at his disposal. Disposal. The dawn of redeeming grace should drive us to genuine worship. Adoration, yes, but not just lifting hands when we're singing. Also, what we do on Monday morning at our job. Yes, when we come in here and we sing a mighty fortress and we think about the fact that God has saved us, but also on Wednesday morning when we open our Bible, dwelling on His Word, storing it in our heart and living it out. And we see this example in the angels, in the shepherds, in Mary, throughout the New Testament, throughout church history, our older brothers and sisters in Christ, who have, by their lives, given us an example of faithfulness. And now we must ask ourselves, how will I respond to Christ? Because I lay before you today that the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is Lord at his birth, the baby in the manger, is worthy of our worship. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the birth of Christ, may we soberly consider our daily worship. May today and tomorrow, and tonight even, as we gather back together, be a time of genuine worship. As we reflect on the joy of Christ, may we also reflect on our responsibility. Help us to serve our King from the heart, and may our word indeed be honor to Him.